unique yet common sense opinions on sports. This is Jeff Allen Sports Talk. And we thank you once again for listening and coming up on this episode. I'm going to speak to a gentleman who was a former colleague of mine at WKIS and WOKB. And a uh, friend of mine from the 1980s, as we reminisce about the mad dog Chris Russo. His name is George Curcio. George and I will share some memories. He is standing by the virtual green room and will join us in just a moment. Hideki Matsuyama wins the Masters, becoming the first Japanese-born player to win at Augusta. Went into the final round with a big lead, held it for most of the day. Xander Shoffley somehow got it to within two strokes going to 16 before he dropped it in the drink and ended his chances. And if you think that he would have uh, not had bogey, bogey, double bogey on the front nine, he might have had a good shot to win that as well. But Hideki Matsuyama wins the Masters. Congratulations to him as uh, he gets that feat done and was the low amateur 10 years prior. So great story to see uh, how he has uh, conquered Augusta twice, if you will. The Atlantic League, which is an eight-team independent partner of Major League Baseball, they're going to do an experiment moving the pitcher's mound back 12 inches. That will be in the second half of the 2021 season. The Atlantic, the Atlantic League will also test what they call a double hook rule, in which the designated hitter is tied to the starting pitcher. Once the starter removed from the game, the DH is gone from the game as well. So that'll be kind of interesting to see. Um, often relief pitchers aren't hitting anyway because they're pinch hit for, but uh, you might have to see one or two so you don't waste your bench. But the moving of the mound back is an interesting scenario. A full foot from the 60 feet 6 inches. So that uh, is sort of in response to the high strikeout rates that are going on as fastball pitchers are, you know, upper 90s, touching 100 miles per hour. Curveballs now have high velocity. So we'll see if it uh, be an interesting experience, experiment to see uh, what that translates to. Well, as I mentioned uh, at the top of the show, I'm going to share some memories of Chris Mad Dog Russo. And uh, last Thursday... I was listening to a show driving home, and Chris started talking about one of his old Orlando callers. Give it a listen. I remember one of the first, one of the first great calls I ever had in Orlando at KIS in Orlando back in nineteen eighty. I would be eighty-three or eighty-four. Uh, that's forty years ago. Uh was a guy by the name of I forget his last name. I was very friendly with his family. Uh George was an old time guy. He grew up in Brooklyn and he was a big Brooklyn Dodger fan. And he was a surly big old guy who had a lot of good things. He was very bright, but he was very he was a contrarian. He, you know, he's one of those talk show hosts uh, callers, you know, he, he knew how to rankle and, you know, get on a talk show host. You know, he knew how to push buttons. He was a talk radio listener, that kind of thing. And we were on a talk radio station at the time. And he used to call all our hosts and, and you know, and get them annoyed. But he was very good to me. I became friends with him and his family. And he was a huge old Brooklyn Dodger fan. 
And he used to tell me all these great stories about the old Brooklyn Dodgers growing up in Brooklyn in the 40s, rooting for the Dodgers. And he was a great call. Uh, his son later became a host on WKIS, also named George, probably still with us today. But his father, I forget his last name. I should think of it in a second. His father was phenomenal. I should get him somewhere to induct. Huh? Boy, I'm getting a little premature with that. All right, and one of the gentlemen that Chris referenced in that uh, little bit that I just played back for you is George Curcio. George uh, was the son of the of, of the man who called and uh, gave Chris a hard time <laughs> and also made him think a lot on his feet. And uh, George ended up being a colleague of mine at uh, WKIS and later at WOKB uh, under the name of George Hampton, if you may remember that, uh, back in time. But George is here on the program, and thank you so much, George, for being here. Oh, glad to be here, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so uh, uh, after I uh, heard that uh, that uh, bit with Chris when I was driving home the other day, I, I, uh, I got on Facebook and, and let you know, and thankfully you pulled that soundbite off. You saved me the trouble, so I actually used that. <laughs> um, uh, so that was kind of cool, you know. When when Chris uh, came to the Orlando market, uh, you know he had come from Jacksonville and still very relatively unknown at that point in time. Uh, but your dad probably became his favorite caller. Um, so did you guys like talk about Chris a little bit before he ever called into the show? Uh, kind of. I'm trying to remember, but I believe we had. Um, I think so. Yeah, and so. And I think you know when Chris started, I, mean, I don't want to cast aspersions because I'm not, but. It naturally, it was a new show, and he was not getting many callers at the beginning. It wasn't a busy show the way it eventually became. But I remember my dad was thinking, listening at one of those early shows and saying, well, I, I should give him a call, and maybe I can help him to get some action going or something. And that's what motivated that. And as it turned out, he and my dad became very good friends. Chris spent a lot of nights at my dad's house, you know, just talking. He would have stopped by after the show. Um, Chris was on from 6 to 8, for people that don't remember. And he would stop by my dad's house a lot of times after the show and talk to my dad. He'd hear about the Brooklyn Dodgers, as he mentioned on the serious, on the serious excerpt that you played. Um, and Chris and my dad really hit it off. I mean, they really liked each other, and it was a good relationship. Yeah, and, I, and one of the things that was kind of interesting, and and I kept I kept yelling at the at the radio the other day when 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 Chris was talking about it, you know, because your dad became known as El Negativo. That was the nickname that Chris adorned him with, and I kept saying El Negativo, El Negativo. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, did, did your did your dad take pride in uh, having having that nickname and kind of being you know uh, thought of so highly uh, yes, by Chris? Yes, he did. Uh, we heard El Negativo. El Negativo, I can't even say it, but we heard that off of the air quite often. He would be proud of it. He would say something and say, that's El Negativo speaking, you know. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and, and like Chris had, had mentioned in that excerpt, you know, uh, you, your, your, your dad had a, had a unique skill uh, when he when he called into talk shows that he could you know he, he had a, he had a good way of, of of counterpointing a lot of the time uh, you know how many years did your dad call into talk radio do you remember oh it was for a long time I mean we moved here in the early 70s 
and he used to talk on WDBO, had a Nightline program there. Right. And he used to call into them pretty often. And, I mean, he probably had 30 years of experience in it <laughs> by the time Chris came to town. <laughs> Yeah, so and you mentioned you know, like uh, you know Chris when when he first started didn't didn't have a whole lot of action and, and I think you know it was it was very interesting at that time and and you know and I was like a you know a nineteen year old kid at the time producing a show and Chris was a unique voice in this market nobody had heard a rapid fire New York accent uh, to his degree before uh, so it, it took a little bit for the audience to warm up to him I think. Uh, it took a, quite a while, I think. It was um, something that they couldn't really get used to, to be honest. When he went to New York, George Vexy, who is the writer for the New York Times, if there was, he's probably passed away by now. But he called Chris a combination of Archie Bunker, Donald Duck, and who was the third one now? I can't think of Jerry Lewis. <laughs> so he said that listening to Chris was something like, a, like listening to a combination of Jerry Lewis Archie Bunker and Donald Duck. <laughs> and I thought that was a really good description of Chris's voice at that time. Um, as a matter of fact, KIS, the station had sent him to a speech therapist, I believe, didn't they? Yes, they did. Yeah, I do remember that. Because they were afraid that people weren't, I guess, understanding his speech or whatever. Yeah. If but I that's kind of gotten me to thinking about Chris because, you know, he went to New York. Originally, he went to WMCA. And then he went over to WFAM, which is the old sports station. And he ended up doing like 19 years afternoon drive on WFAN with my friend, man, Francesa. I can't even say that. <laughs> I'm trouble speaking tonight. Mike Francesa. And it was called Mike and the Mad Dog. Yep. And Chris says, given the Mad Dog term title was the best thing that ever happened to him. I've always personally hated it, but I can see what he means by that. Mm -hmm. That was given to him by a writer from the um, Daily News, Bob Raceman. Mm. And he said that Chris reminded him of Mad Dog Rashan, who was the wrestler. Oh, okay. And he said that he had seen a picture of Rashan biting a newspaper with his teeth, like tearing into it. And that's what he thought about when he heard Russo on the radio, he thought that was the way Chris attacked his subject. And a lot of times, if you read Rasmussen over the years, he'll mention Chris. And one of the most common things he mentions is, boy, that Chris Russo really knows his sports, but I wish he wouldn't slur his words. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was like a constant theme. Yeah. So, what it got me to thinking about what I started to say earlier is, Chris went to New York and became a national success really out of that. And now he's on Sirius Radio. But um, if he hadn't gone to New York, I don't know how successful he could have been or would have been. Yeah, you know, so, like, yeah, so sometimes the New York setting seemed to take to him and he obviously was from there. And he fit right in. But like when he came to Orlando, I don't know if it was a good fit at first. By the end of it, it, I really, I think, seemed to grow into one. But at first, it was kind of touch and go. And I know a lot of people thought he sounded ridiculous on the radio and that kind of thing. So when he went to New York, it was more of an accepted thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was kind of, it's just, that's Chris being Chris, you know? I mean, it's just... Um, 
Yeah, one thing we can always say about Chris is he's always been true to himself, uh, no matter what. You know, and he, you know, he was exactly. in, you know, when he, he was in Jacksonville before he came to Orlando, and he actually uh, had had been given a, a like a two show tryout, uh, if you will, before he got the job in Orlando. And I remember the first time, you know, because uh, I was pretty, I think Buddy Pittman was doing the show at the time, uh, and and. And so I'm at home one afternoon and I get a call uh, from the radio station and it's Chris and he's going 100 miles an hour. Hey, guys, Jeff, how you doing? And I uh, uh, got somebody over to Jacksonville Bulls and uh, we'll see you tonight. <laughs> and, and that was my. It's a match! It's a match! <laughs> and that was my first, uh, my first exposure to Chris. Um, and, you know, we got through those shows. He, got, he, he, he was offered the job and it was very interesting. You know, when you talk about, and this always brings up one of my favorite stories about Chris, you know, with the people, with people having a difficult time understanding him. One night, you know, they, you know, sometimes the salespeople would uh, need to get uh, somebody some exposure and they brought in the local karate instructor, YK Kim. And so Chris does a, you know, obligatory, you know, 10 minute interview with him. And the funniest thing, you know, Steve Byro, who was our news evening newsman at the time, comes running into the control room and goes, this is great. I can't understand a thing either one of them saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, uh, but, but beyond that, you know, once people got used to Chris and once people discovered the knowledge and the memory of the sports he had, I think that, you know, that was probably his biggest selling point. And the other thing that he did that was genius and I still don't ever believe he, he truly thought it to be true, but he went on the stance that Don Shula was overrated. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and that's and that generates some controversy with that, right? Yeah, you know, and in in, in, in in you know, this was pretty much a dolphin market at the time. Uh and so that uh, that kind of got people in in fact uh, what you said uh, earlier in in uh, imitating him, you know. Don Shula is a great coach. That's a myth. It's a myth. <laughs> yes. that was, I remember that expression. Yeah. I don't know why, but he used to yell at it fairly often. Yeah, I know. He doesn't do that anymore. I kind of wish he'd bring that back. That was that was <laughs> that was always good stuff. Um, and, and I guess that was probably the other thing. You know, can you can you recall a favorite thing of Chris when he was here in Orlando, from your standpoint? Um, actually, I have a couple of things I remember about him from when he and I were like out around the town personally. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, when he was here in Orlando, he filled a lot of his time by trying to do social activities, or I should say social work more than activities. He was a big brother for a while, and he also delivered Meals on Wheels. And one time he asked me to go with him on the Meals on Wheels um, delivery. And we were in Winter Park, and we went to it. There was a house where the front door was open, and we just went in, which kind of surprised me at first. But Chris had been there before also. It was like his regular route. So he went in, and there were about 10 African-American women in the living room, the family room. And they were standing around talking in tongues. And it was all like very serious. And Chris walks in and says, hello there. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, Chris, Chris, Chris. And I'm kind of motioning with my hands, with my palms down, like, keep it down here. But Chris looks at him and he's got this confused look on his face. He says, hello there. (laughs) And they didn't respond. Which, you know, they were talking in tongues and they're in their spiritual zone and everything. 
And he looked at me and I said, Chris, they're talking in tongues. Just, And he had no idea what that meant, which I had explained the whole thing to him once we went outside. But it was really hard not to burst out laughing at that point because he looked like a dog where he took away his bone and he didn't know why or something. You know, it was just like he had that look about, what's going on here? What is this? And there was another time, there's actually near the building where you're probably working now in downtown on Magnolia, there's a, um, I don't know if I should have said that or not, Jeff, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no worries, go, on, go ahead, you're good, you're fine. Okay. Um, there was a sandwich shop down on Magnolia called The Lunch Basket, I don't think it's still there, but... It was like a soup Nazi place. You would line up and get your sandwiches and leave, and there wasn't much talking <laughs> and thing like that. It was really weird. But, I mean, the lines were at the door every day. As soon as they opened, they would start lining up. So Chris and I went there for lunch one day, and we were walking out or walking away from the restaurant. And Chris was talking to me, you know, going 100 miles an hour, like you said before. And a man walked by and said something to Chris. And then he said, Chris, at the end, he, like, he added his name to what he was saying. So the guy recognized Chris, who he was, by his voice. Mm. And then the guy just you know, kept on walking. It was no big deal. But Chris looked at me, and he was, like, astounded. And he said, that guy knew who I was. He recognized my voice. And I thought, well, it's a pretty distinctive voice. I mean, <laughs> you know, it didn't... It didn't really make that much impact on me because it didn't surprise me. But Chris was shocked that he um, was recognized, that the man knew who he was. And I just think about that now. And I think, you know, Bruce, Chris was a uh, big Bruce Springsteen fan, mm. which everyone knew if they listened to him. And now in his job at Sirius, he actually did an interview with Springsteen one time. Uh, I think it was, I don't know if it was at Madison Square Garden or where it was, but it was like a big to-do because they had some kind of event going on. And I just thought, you know, now Chris is interviewing Bruce Springsteen and probably trying to act like it's no big deal. <laughs> and if he had done that when he was down here, he would have been over the moon. You know, he would have just been going crazy about it. And uh, a lot of the stuff he's done in New York now is... Stuff that, again, like I said before about, I don't know if he would have succeeded if he had a gun in New York. Mm -hmm. Because he was, um, he was just, if he had done that here, you know, interviewed Bruce Springsteen, he would have been crazy. Yeah. No, and now he's just doing stuff like that and taking it in stride. Uh, matter of fact, one of the first things he ever did back in the 1980s, he was broadcasting for Rusty Stobbs Restaurant. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And a caller called in and criticized Rusty Staub and friend Healy for their work on TV. And Russo joined in with it. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, I mean, you're sitting in the guy's restaurant and you start bad-mouthing. It was kind of, that's the kind of stuff that Chris, like you said before, he's always himself. He was always himself and didn't bother about the bad things around him. So, that. Yeah, that's the, those are those are some uh, great stories uh, for sure. And then you, the, the the fact that you know when 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 he became a guest on David Letterman was kind of a you know uh, 
landmark kind of stuff you know uh you know i grew up watching letterman and and was was always a big fan of that show and and to see chris being on that program uh you know it's like wow you know it's kind of like kind of surreal in a lot of ways well i remember the first time he did it because he had called me and he was all excited he was going on letterman and but i believe he didn't didn't he do it a couple of times over the years i mean didn't it a handful a of times. Fairly common thing. Yeah, he did it a handful of times, yeah. Yeah, that's what I had thought and thought that it came like a not a commonplace, but it was no big deal, I guess, is how you would describe it eventually. And the first time he was on there, he was just so he couldn't believe it. And um you know, now he's he's interviewing hall of famers every day and it's just the stuff that he's doing now compared to what he did when he was in orlando it's just it's hard to believe it's the same guy in a way but yet he's still the same guy yeah no when you listen to him on the radio he sounds the same and he's still chris you still have a hard time understanding what he's talking about half the time (laughs) and um things like that but he you know he, he he made Orlando proud, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I, I, I would concur with that for sure. And, uh, and you know, when you, and you also think back about, about the time, you know, the USFL had the Orlando Renegades here. Lee Corso was the coach. And he used, to do right. the, he used to do the show with Lee Corso down at Charlie's Steakhouse. And then, you know, Lee Corso would become, uh, you know, a broadcasting legend in his own right as far as college football is, is concerned. So it's kind of interesting to see how those, uh, how all those things, uh, uh, tie together, and of course, the other uh, interesting aspect of you know, your relationship with Chris and 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 whatnot was that uh, you actually got to break into the talk show business at uh, WKIS. Ah, uh, uh, yes, give me, that's true. Give me your uh, give me your recollections on how that came about. Well, actually, I was um, let's see, I had just graduated from college a couple of years early. I'm trying to remember now; it's been so long. But um, I was doing some freelance writing, and I wanted to do a freelance article on Chris. And I had spent a couple of hours with him down at the studio, and I think I had paid a couple of visits. And um, I became very friendly with him, and our personalities just hit it off. And actually, I don't really know how it happened, but I know that Chris probably had a hand in it, but I ended up working at the station, <laughs> becoming a talk show host, and I'm sure that Chris had some influence. But um, it was fortunate for me. It was a. Um, it lasted about I don't know how many months. It didn't last a full year. We had a new general manager come in, and she kind of blitzed everybody out of the station. All the people that work in there. You mentioned. Um, Steve Byro earlier. I think Steve is up in New York somehow, some now, some somewhere. I'm having trouble speaking. I apologize for that. No, but I believe Chris is up in, or Steve is up in New York somewhere working um, somewhere as tangentially in the broadcast industry, like off the air. And mm-hmm. I don't know what he's doing, but he was very talented. Jim Phillips did our afternoon news and evening news. Yep. He was the newsman on my show when I started, and he ended up doing a long time, a long time talk show for like 20 years or something in the afternoons before he retired. We had some very talented people, and um, it 
was just a good time. It was, and everybody really got along with each other. I was just thinking about Mike and the Mad Dog. Uh, there was supposedly a time for like six months where they didn't talk to each other on a personal level. Everything was on the air, and if they were off the air, they wouldn't talk to each other because they were mad at each other. <clears throat> Excuse me. And there was a lot of stuff like that that went on over the years. Yeah. And we never really had to deal with any of that. It was kind of nice here that everybody got along. Yeah, no, WKIS at that time, you know, it was like, uh, to me, on the verge of, of greatness because of all the talent. You know, Gene Burns was a longtime uh, talk show host, Clive Thomas, um, you know, uh, Bob Christopher, who uh, who did the anchor the morning news and was the news director, uh, had a long talk show career in New Orleans, uh, as a matter of fact. And oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, so there, the the depth of talent that was around there. Uh, you know, uh, Wayne Trout was an Orlando radio institution for for many years. At uh, uh, prior to that, at WDBO, and before that, at the old WLOF. So. There, the, the 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 wealth of talent that was in that room was amazing, and to think you mentioned the general manager that blitzed everybody out. Chris was one of the people blitzed out in that, which <laughs> doesn't make her look so smart. But that's a whole other that's a whole other program. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So what what was your what what was your favorite moment of doing a talk show? Oh, gee, I'm not prepared for that question. <laughs> um, actually. What we did that no other talk shows that I ever heard did is if a caller was on the air and there was another caller that wanted to challenge them, they could. They would just call and tell the producer who answered the phones that I want to challenge the call that's on the fan on the air, and I would let them go at with each other. And we had some interesting conversations as a result of that. Um, as you might expect, it wasn't calling to say, gee, you're right, I really like what you're saying. It was calling because <laughs> they took exception to what was going on, and I would just sit back and let them go at each other. <laughs> and those were probably my favorite times. I wish other talk shows would do it, although now it's really hard to find a talk show that isn't, um, I don't know what the word is, but geared towards achieving a certain solution or a certain conclusion. Yeah. Everything has, you know, an underlying reason for it and everything. Yeah. I'm talking about the Sean Hannity's and the Rush Limbaugh's. And it happens to be that those are both conservative, and I don't want to be accused of picking out conservative, but... But it's a, um, it's a, it's it's a, a gender easier, radio, yeah. It's a lot easier to do good conservative talk radio than it is to do liberal talk radio. Mm-hmm. And if you remember a couple of years ago, they tried a um, liberal radio network that I think was on Sirius for a while. And it didn't succeed at all because, again, I don't want to engage in stereotypes and everything. But if you're a liberal, then you're accepting of most things. And so it's hard to be critical if you're a liberal because you seem hypocritical. Mm. Whereas if you're conservative, you can come on and say, gee, the president's daughter is an ugly dog. And, <laughs> you know, if the president's a liberal, of course. Of course. Yeah. Um, but if you oppose them politically, you can come on and, as a conservative and say all kinds of things you want to. So uh, it's a lot easier now. I can't really find stuff to listen to on the radio myself. 
It's because a, everything is so biased. Yeah, it's, it's a, kind of funny because a couple of weeks ago I was. Um, I, if they had the internet, when I was a kid. I probably never would have slept <laughs> because you can get radios from anywhere. Yeah, radio stations. And a couple of weeks ago, now when I was a kid, forty years ago in Orlando, I used to lay in my bed with my transistor radio, and some nights I was able to get KDKA from Pittsburgh. That was always like a special station to me. When I was a kid, KDKA was like a hometown station. So a couple of weeks ago, I was on the Internet, and I just put on KDKA, KDKA on the Internet, and Jim Bohannon was on. Wow. Who I, di- I didn't even know he was still doing a show because he was doing the show back when we were doing it. <laughs> yeah. And before Larry King, he used to fill in for Larry King every once in a while, and then he subsequently succeeded Larry King when King went to TV. <clears throat> but I listened to Jimbo Hannon for a while. And it was just nice to hear like a centrist talk show that didn't have a theme. It was building tours or anything. And it didn't have a um, theme for the callers to follow or like a path for the callers to follow with their opinions. It was just an exchange of opinion. I thought, you know, you don't ever hear this anymore. This is really nice to hear. And everything has just changed so much in the radio business, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. And in everything that, uh, like in Orlando, I mean, what happened 30 or 40 years ago on the radio in Orlando could never happen now. No, no. And, you know, you have all the technological advances and the Internet and all that, but. I don't necessarily know that it's a good thing. I mean, it is in a lot of ways. I mean, like I said, you can get radio stations from anywhere in the world. But when they're all broadcasting the same syndicated talk show from 2 to 6 every afternoon, yeah, <laughs> what does it matter? You know, I listen to Sean Hannity from New York, or I can listen to him from California. Big deal. <laughs> you know, back 40 years ago, it was kind of nice when you had local stations that had local personalities and each station had like a particular niche that they occupied and it was kind of nice and that was what we grew up with that they don't have nowadays and i think it's a shame actually yeah no i i I totally agree with you on that and you know one of the you know great things about uh, you know uh, being together WKIS is uh, that you and I you and I got to be friends as well, and uh, we got to work together again at uh, after I I left KIS and went to Tampa for a short spell, and came back to Orlando and I eventually landed at WOKB doing evenings and uh, Saturday morning shift and uh, and uh, you you got to come on board uh, doing some weekend work uh, as a disc jockey so you you had. Uh, you had uh, gone to a different realm in your broadcasting career. Exactly. Exactly. And it was a lot of growth for me during that year, those years, because I had never been a disc jockey before. And it was kind of a novel situation for me, but I really enjoyed it. Yes. And, 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 and that was before, um, I think it was just right before music really went electronic on onto on compact disc and things like that. We were actually still spinning records. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, it was. I was thinking about that with radio and how you used to listen to the radio and hope your song came on. And now you just have Spotify and all these other things that you just play a song you want to hear. Mm-hmm. 
you know, everything's digital now and everything's almost instantaneous. Same thing with TV. I mean, if you missed, as a matter of fact, one of the things I do every morning is I go through YouTube and I watch all these snippets from the late night shows, which is basically their monologues. And I watch Stephen Colbert and Jimmy Fallon and Jimmy Kimmel. And I watch their opening monologues from the night before. I don't have to stay up late to watch it. I don't have to flip channels. It's just there on demand. It's just, I mean, people who are growing up today, I don't think they realize exactly (laughs) how bad it was back in the old days. (laughs) You know, we talk about the good old days, but it was bad in a lot of ways. I remember having the three TV networks in Orlando and, I remember when the first Channel 35 started and they ended up going bankrupt and going off the air. Mm -hmm. For a long time, we only had the three networks. And if the president gave an address that night, he was on every network. (laughs) And you had nothing to watch. You know, it was usually on at 8 o'clock. And you'd flip the three networks or the three channels, which is all you had in Orlando. But I can remember, well, 20, I don't know when Channel 24 started, but it was whoever still- watched PBS as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, and they're gone now, too. They went to WUCF now, I guess, PBS. Yes. But as a kid, you really, it was such a big deal. I remember when Channel 9 started broadcasting, excuse me, started broadcasting on the weekends all night. And it was like such a big deal that they didn't sign off at two in the morning. <laughs> yes, the national anthem <laughs> every night. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those it definitely has uh, changed changed quite a bit. Uh, and uh, so you did a little disc jockey work, uh, uh, and, and that was a blast. And then uh, we also got to be associated again uh, at WGTO for a little bit too, because you had gotten into graphic arts at that time. And uh, you were gracious enough to uh, provide us uh, with some uh, awesome sales flyers uh, that, uh, that that we went to the street with, uh, you know, sell $10 ads. <laughs> That's right. I've forgotten about that. <laughs> I think I still have some of those, too. So do you still dabble? I in probably the- do. Yeah, yeah, somewhere in the garage. And again, thanks to George Curcio, my longtime friend and former colleague at uh, WKIS and WOKB for uh, coming on the show and uh, sharing his memories of Chris Russo before pre-Mad Dog Days, if you will. And while we're on the topic of the 1980s, let's close out with this TV theme. That is the short, sweet, but yet effective theme from the Goldbergs, which premiered in September of 2013 on ABC, now in its eighth season. The series was created by Adam F. Goldberg and is set in 1980s in Jenkintown, Pennsylvania. Shows the reality of the 80s through his eyes, loosely based on his childhood, during which he regularly videotaped events. Many of those videos reenacted for series episodes with the original version then shown before the end credits. Series stars Jeff Garland as the father Murray, Wendy McClendon-Covey as the mother Beverly, 
and the, I should say, the smother Beverly. <laughs> Their two older children are Erica, played by Haley Arantia, and Barry, played by Troy Gentile. The youngest child, Adam, played by Sean Giambrone, documents his family life with his video camera. And Beverly's father, Albert Pop Solomon, frequently around to provide advice, help out his grandchildren, and be uh, terrifically wonderful and goofy. The late, now late great George Siegel, who passed away recently, and uh, he does such a wonderful, wonderful job playing Pop Pop on the Goldbergs, and he cer- certainly will be missed. And of course, George Siegel, great film and television actor for many, many years, and uh, his last role as Pops, certainly an all-timer. And with that, we are done here. Thanks for listening to Jeff Allen Sports Talk. Follow Jeff on Twitter at JeffAllen underscore 88, on Facebook at JeffAllen88, and the website JeffAllenSportsTalk.com. And you can reach out to the show anytime by email, JeffAllenSportsTalk at gmail.com. Jeff Allen Sports Talk is brought to you exclusively by Kramer's Salve for Dogs. Does your dog itch, suffer from debilitating skin allergies, or trouble hot spots? We have the solution using the healing power of neem. Kramer's Salve is a safe and natural approach to help your best friend live an itch-free life. Go to KramerSalve.net to order today with new low pricing. That's K-R-A-M-E-R-S-A-L-V-E dot net.